Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, December 7th, 2010. Making some last-second decisions here. Yes, yes, maybe... No. Ah. <laughs> I hate it when I'm wishy-washy. It'll come to me. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, at the, at the lead-in to the program, I, I, I'm going to do something I normally don't do, and that is to ask you to stop and, and to pray. Um, just found out today that uh, the, the gal who rents out uh, her house to uh, my family, that her husband was uh, killed in a car accident. And um, they've got small kids, and uh, he was in his early thor- uh, 40s. It, it's... Really, really a tragic situation, and um, and so I would ask that you would stop and pray for Chris's landlady. I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable giving her name over the air, but um, it it's just really, really a sad, sad bit of news that we got on that today. So if you could stop and pray for her and her family, and uh, that somehow that God would uh, shine through this tragic situation, I I would be greatly appreciative of it, and I'm sure that she would too. So. Uh, if if you're listening via podcast, just pause for a second and pray for her. All right. You know, with that said, um, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the program today. Yeah, as I, t- today is a you know, I, hmm, made a decision that I'm going to do something. Uh, I I wanted to uh, play my uh, outlaw preachers uh, lecture today, but I'm going to save it till tomorrow. I said it would be either Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm going to save it till tomorrow. And uh, instead, uh, you know, kind of talk about what we're going to talk about in the hour number two today. Uh, hour number two, we're going to be um, listening to a sermon from Life Church in Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, got to tell you, it, it's just a horrible sermon. It's and not only that, it it, it what I'm going to try to do is kind of show you how <laughs> over and again Bible teachers who go wrong. Um, take our focus off of Christ. That's that's that is primary number one. It, 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 over and again, you get these folks that that take our focus off of Christ, and 
they point it at something else. And the way they do it is it's the same method every time, is they take verses out of context or they allegorize passage passages or claim that they're getting special revelation from God to uh, that, you know, they give insights into the passages that, that, that have never been seen before. And uh, as a result of it, they teach some of the most blasphemous things. And so uh, I, 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 you can, today's sermon review is uh, is kind of a special request sermon review. And uh, for our, you know, it was uh, the special request came from uh, some folks down down in the Pacific, South Pacific, and uh, and so I, you know, I I I felt the need to uh, to put that above my uh, my playing the lecture for the outlaw preachers that I that I gave on Saturday. So we're going to be doing that today, and then uh, we're gonna. I've got a little bit of email that I want to talk about. We've got some stuff in the news. Um, yeah, oh man, uh, Liam Neeson. Uh, you know, we're we're on the eve of the uh, the new Chronicles of Narnia. Um, movie coming out, The Voyage of the John Treader, and uh, Liam Neeson has, uh, has well, he's upset some people, <laughs> to say the least, and uh, the way he's upset them is is that uh, he's made some claims regarding Aslan that are inconsistent with the writings of, of C.S. Lewis himself, and so we're going to uh, take a look at a little bit of that, at that controversy. We've got... Uh, a quick op-ed piece written by uh, Perry Noble that I want to look at today, and then uh, Tulin uh, Tulin Tavidjian. I, I I always mess this guy's name up. Um, uh, Tavidjian. Well, anyway, he's he's got a decent article, a decent op-ed piece that he wrote for the uh, Christian Post on the proper distinction of law and gospel that I think would be uh, uh, really beneficial to share with you all today. And so today's program, we've got, you know, we've, we've got lots of ground that we want to cover. And uh, I don't have much of a monologue today, just, you know, in light of the news that, that kind of hit us upside the head today, I, I don't have a lot of, um, I, I just don't, you know, I, I'm, for lack of a better way of putting it, I'm not exactly in the greatest mood when it comes to writing a monologue for the program. So I, uh, <sighs> Just one of those things. So I, I well, maybe what we should do is just uh, dive into the program, and I, we'll just go from there, and we'll see where we land. So, so there, that's what we're gonna do. Duh, duh, duh. <laughs> or as my daughter would say, she goes meh. So so meh. That's what we're gonna do. <laughs> By the way, the meh wasn't directed at you. It was really directed at me. Meh. My tea, a little bit of Earl Grey today on a cold day. Okay, uh, the first email comes to us via Frank, and I am, well, I'm not exactly sure what uh, what part of the world Frank is in. I guess I could figure it out because he did leave me his... Um, phone number. Hmm. But I won't give it out over the air. No, no, don't worry about that. Frank writes, and he says, uh, your article on the letter of Mark regarding labels and roadblocks. Uh, Chris, I found, I find your recent article to stand out from your others, mostly because of its overall focus. And I'll explain. I agree that, 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 I agree that understanding of scripture should bring us to awareness of Christ and him crucified, as well as our inability to be righteous without his saving grace. I think this passage speaks very specifically 
to the sin that was constant and active in the past of the lives of those believers. Now, by the way, he's referring to the article that I wrote at Letter of Mark and Red on the on the program yesterday. So Paul, in in the, it's the First Corinthians six passage. So Frank is making the case that this passage, that specific passage, was referring to uh, the sin that was constant and active in the past in those believers. And Frank, I would completely agree with you. And I'll, I'll show you. Uh, I'll show you that the text, the 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 um article that I wrote yesterday was a little bit subversive, and in, in you have to read it carefully, but I'll, I'll come back to it. He says, I also think that it should uh, give us hope if we too are committing some sort of act of sin and thus convict us and cause us to cry out uh, to Christ in repentance. However, where I disagree is not with something that you've said, speci- uh, that you've specifically said, but rather the tone of the article. Okay. Now, by the way, I should let everybody know that when somebody emails me and they disagree with me, I do read. I do read those. Uh, make a point of reading them, and many of them do make it to the air. Uh, a lot of them don't, especially when they engage in vitriol. But this is this is interesting. I want to say something before I read uh, Frank's comment about the quote tone of my article. I don't know about you guys, but I have found that tone is a very difficult thing to convey uh, when you're writing. Uh, when you're writing on the internet or you're writing on uh, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And, um, and so as a result of it, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to convey. But I did read the article yesterday, which does say something about the tone that I wrote it in. So anyway, uh, he said, uh, the tone expresses, especially in light of the fact that you were at a reunion for the Outlaw Preachers, that the church at large may be in danger of labeling and roadblocking active sinners as listed in the passage. Now, I'm going to say something here, and it, I, I want to make this clear, Frank. Um, that article is written not to generally the church at large, in the sense that I'm not, I wasn't trying to target a particular church, except for the ones that are very legalistic and pietistic. That was really kind of my target in that sense. And I think I mentioned that yesterday, that I wasn't looking at a particular denomination. I wasn't trying to single out uh, Methodists or Nazarenes or Presbyterians or Lutherans or non-denoms. But really, I, w- the, uh, I was writing about a specific problem that I think exists in multiple, you know, across the spectrum of theologies. And that is, is that the tendency for some churches to go very legalistic and pietistic. And as a result of it, what happens is, is that those people specialize in the law and the gospel gets lost in the shuffle and all the legalism. And so, but anyway, but let me continue with the email. He says, in my experience, as well as in the experience of nearly everyone with whom I've spoken over the last 20 years, roadblocking sinners is not the present problem of the majority of seeker sensitive or purpose driven churches. Completely agree with you there, by the way. Um, seeker driven and purpose driven churches. Yeah. They don't roadblock nobody. Uh, (laughs) In fact, repentance and the forgiveness of sins doesn't seem to be high on their priority list in their preaching. It, we're just going to affirm you where you're at. Anyway, he says, more often these churches are widening the road to include anyone and everyone, including active sinners with who have no visible intention of repentance and do not agree with Scripture's clear teaching of what it uh, what is and is not sin. I agree with you. Thus... Um, I have to say that while I while I agree that the specific truths addressed in this article are valid, I think it's more reflective of the tone of 
those hurt because of their active sinful lifestyles by Christians who may be inept at expressing the difference between tolerance of a repentant believer who has made a mistake and acceptance of a person who believes his sin is not truly sin. Now, this is a good point. Um, and and, and I, I would tighten up your language a little bit, Frank. Let me read that sentence again. He says uh, that, that, that sinful lifestyles by Christians who may be inept at expressing the difference between tolerance of a repentant believer who has made a mistake. Let's, let's crank that up, okay? Um, what, we're, what we're talking about here is not necessarily tolerance. What we're talking about, when you go to church, okay, um, and, you know, you're sitting there in your congregation. When you look to your right and you look to your left and then you look to yourself, what you should see is repentant sinners. You, you know, when we come to church with this in mind, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, then there's no there's no room there's nothing left for us to somehow look down our noses on somebody else okay and when somebody when somebody trips up when somebody commits an egregious sin and that's the thing it's not just a whoopsie okay we sin against god in thought we sin against god in word we sin against god in deed these are not just mere mistakes even Christians commit premeditated sins. And what I mean by that is, is that, what does Jesus say? Sin begins in the heart, okay? You entertain these things in your heart, these ideas, and then you act out on them. But the, see, even the thought, of, you know, the, the desire to do those things is sinful. And so the idea is, is that Christians don't just, um, you know, they're walking down the street, and there's a patch of black sinful ice. They don't see it. But as soon as they step onto it, whoop, you know, they fall flat on their back and then, you know, and then they've, they've just, you know, accidentally made a mistake to step on the black sinful ice and that's how come they, you know, they fell. You know, okay, we wrestle against our sinful nature and our sinful natures. Read Paul again in Romans 7. Our, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who's going to rescue me from this this body of sin, okay? Our sinful, uh, sinful nature is, our flesh is warring against the new creation that God has put into us uh, through the preaching of his word, that faith, that, uh, that, that, we're, the, that part of us that is made alive by, uh, by God's word. The flesh is warring against it, and it really, 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 really badly wants to sin. It, it's, um, I, I, was it Rosenblatt who used this metaphor? And it's a good one. Think of it this way, is, is that um, a dog, okay, you, you ever have, well, have you ever had an, an animal that you've, you know, that's passed away and you've buried in your backyard? Let's just say that the family cat has died. And I know some of you, by telling the story that the family cat has died, that many of you are going to sit and going, yeah, yeah, I hate cats. <laughs> I'm not telling, telling the story because of cat. I like cats. I've got two of them. Anyway, so let's pretend that the family cat has died and you've decided to give uh, good old uh, Tabby the cat your a proper a proper Christian burial and so you you know you you dig a grave for Tabby the family cat in the backyard and and you put a little Tabby cross back there and 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 then you bury the cat, you know, and and you know and 
and let's just say, you know, a couple of weeks goes by. And you think nothing of it. I mean, because, you know, Tabby's now gone and, and buried. And, um, and your pet Labrador, one day, two weeks after the burial, decides to dig up Tabby's grave. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh yes, and in fact, the your 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 dog, you know, your lab just gets in there and just digs and digs and digs and digs and digs and digs and finds Tabby's decomposing and rotting body. And not only does your Labrador pull the <clears throat> rotting carcass of Tabby out, but then begins to roll around in it and just. Oh, it's just like in pig heaven, you know. It just oh rolls around, and this thing is the best thing ever. And and then brings the the, the the putrefying pieces of Tabby to your doorstep and to share with you because this is the best thing ever, right? Yeah. See, that's what our sinful natures like to do. They like to roll. It, our sinful nature, I mean, it just likes to chase after sin, just the same way a black Labrador would dick up a two-week-old body of a dead family pet and then roll around in that muck and mire that's what our sin it's not a mistake it no 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 that's what it wants to do <laughs> and you see that's the difference okay so the idea here is is that when we preach the law you got to preach it all the way not just part of the way we're not talking about tolerance of sinners okay we're not talking about tolerance of people who've made mistakes we're talking about sitting in church and realizing the guy next to me and he and his wife and his children all have the same problem I have, and that is that by nature we are sinful and unclean and we chase after sin and we really like it. Okay? That's the problem. And so we sin in thought, we sin in word, we sin in deed, we sin by the things we do, we sin by the things we don't do. We, I mean, we invent new ways of sinning. That's how wretched we are, okay? And all of us in church are there to confess this truth and to be forgiven, to hear the word that cancels out that sin, because we know that if we get what we deserve for all of that sin-loving stuff that we do, we're going to be damned. That's just, that's, there is no hope for us. We have no hope in and of ourselves. And trying to basically say, well, you know, it was just a mistake. I can tolerate people who are making mistakes. No, 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 no. You're going to church, and you're sitting with a bunch of repentant sinners. And the thing, one of the things that, that really distinguishes Christians from non-Christians is that we've changed our mind through the powerful working of God's Word. We have been brought to a change in mind, a change in mind that says, I'm not okay. This is not okay. This You can't wink at this stuff. It's not all right. It's wretched. It's wrong. And I'm the one doing it. And I'm the one who's done it. And so we come as contrite, repentant sinners to be forgiven, to hear the word of absolution, to hear that Christ has died for that. And so the idea then is, is if you go back and you read my, my article, okay, notice that I'm making the case that church is the place where repentant sinners need to be. Now, 
He's going, well, what do you do with a person who's been raised in the church who doesn't believe that it's wrong anymore? Answer, you go to a different passage. When somebody has sinned, you go to them privately, and you tell them, you have done this, you need to repent and be forgiven. Christianity is about repentant sinners being, you know, living in that forgiveness of sins, being in Christ, bearing fruit and keeping with that repentance, okay? So when somebody, you know, you go, you see somebody who's sinning or they sinned against you, you go to them and you tell them, you can't be doing this. This is against the will of God. This is a sin. Repent and be forgiven. And if they say, say to you, go pound sand, I like this sin and I refuse to believe that what I'm doing is wrong. Okay. Then you go and you grab somebody else. You bring them along with you. Sit down and say, brother, this is wrong. You need to repent. You need to be brought to repentance. This is, this is what God's word says. This is what you've done. Here's the evidence that we know that you've done this. Repent and be forgiven. Go pound sand is the, is the thing that comes back. In that case, then you take it to the church. And the church then at that point exercises church discipline and puts that person out of the church with the hopes that they will repent and be forgiven. So the idea is, is that a ch- the church is a house of repentant, forgiven sinners. And you maintain you you continue in that fellowship through repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. Okay? Now, some churches, for whatever reason, they've kind of lost sight of the whole sin thing and think that the way you grow a church, like a, a church can be grown this way, is just to accept people where they're at. No, no, no. Now, by the way, is a sinner welcome to come and to hear the gospel and to hear the word of God? Yeah. They can come and hear. They shouldn't be participating in the in the Lord's Supper with you. But they can come in here. You can still warn them as brothers and sisters. You can still warn them. Call them to repentance. But see, the idea then is, is that when you've exercised church discipline, they don't have they don't have fellowship in that sense. They then are on the outside looking in. But you want them to come back in. You want them to repent and be forgiven. It's not just you just put them out. The goal is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The goal is not discipline. Discipline is the means to the end in that sense. And many times I think the folks who use these roadblock things, we just want you out. No, it's I just want you to repent and be forgiven. (laughs) You know, ultimately, that's what it's got to come down to, and sometimes that's just that just falls into the category of tough love. But anyway, so in the sentence, you know, you know, it, it's not the difference between tolerance of a repentant believer who has made a mistake and acceptance of a person who believes his sin is not truly sin. Yeah, no, it's 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 more than that, um, because you know, I, I'm not there. You know, we don't go to church to tolerate repentant believers who've made mistakes. We go to church to be in communion and fellowship. We're talking about true fellowship, koinonia. We have koinonia and fellowship with repentant sinners who've committed egregious sins and have repented, are in repentance, and are forgiven. Okay? 
Anyway, he says, he says, thus I will have to say that I, while I agree that the specific truths addressed in this article are valid, I think it's more effective, uh, reflective of the tone of those hurt because of their active sinful lifestyles by Christians who may be inept at expressing the difference between tolerance. Yeah, we got that. So, yeah, that, that okay, yeah, I read that over again. Um, yeah, so here's the deal. At the Outlaw Preachers, okay, we do have folk who are um, unrepentant and who don't believe that their behavior is sinful. And what do you do with them? You show them what God's Word says and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And in some of the conversations I have, you know what I found? I found people who didn't, who uh, who uh, are not um, quibbling with God's Word as to what it teaches regarding sin. They're just struggling with trying to sort it all out in their own lives and what it all means. So they'll say, yeah, I, you're right. The Bible says it's a sin. I don't know what that means for me. Repent, be forgiven. Repent and be forgiven. There's forgiveness. Christ died for this. So if you reread the article with this kind of in mind, you'll notice that I'm not making, I'm not making any room for unrepentant sinners. I'm not making any room for them at all. Instead, they're invited to the Lord's table just like everybody else with this in mind. They are to be repentant and be forgiven for their sins and acknowledge their sin as sin. And they, when they refuse to see their sin as sin, they disqualify themselves. I don't disqualify them. They separate themselves when they do that. I'm not separating them. In fact, in many aspects, church discipline is just an acknowledgement of the fact that the person who is being disciplined refuses to continue in repentance and has changed their mind back and is trying to make allowances for their sin to say that it's okay and that God is okay with it when he's clearly said that he isn't. So anyway, anyway, so... Great email, by the way, but um, you know the I the I think I, the idea there is is that uh, you know if you go back and you reread that article, you'll notice I don't make any any room. I don't leave any room for unrepentant sinners. That being the case, since we have the true solution to uh, our sinful problem, Christ and Him crucified, and the forgiveness of those sins, you want to conquer sin? It well, you can't. Christ has already conquered it. You conquer sin by the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. Where the gospel reigns, there's no room for self-righteousness. I mean, seriously, how on earth can I be self-righteous? I mean, good night. I've got no righteousness in of myself to boast about, right? I'm a repentant and forgiven sinner, and I think you think you are too. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we'll do a little bit of news. We've got plenty of stuff to do today. And remember, hour number two, a very interesting bad prosperity sermon from down under from uh, the Auckland, New Zealand area. Now, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on uh, this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pyre Christian. We'll be right back.
Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon. Beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
Pirate Christian Radio. Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. church, the koinonia, the fellowship, it's comprised of repentant sinners. Yeah, not repentant mistakers. Just saying. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then forward that on to Post Office Box Fighting uh, uh, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let's, uh, let's move on to the news. From the Telegraph in the UK, 
Liam Neeson angers Narnia fans by suggesting Aslan is Mohammed. Yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, I, I have gotten a few uh, questions about the upcoming Narnia uh, movie and my thoughts on it. You know, it, it, you know, it, should it be avoided because, you know, it has, you know, magical themes to it? and uh, it, it, Or is it is it just, you know, Christian allegory? Or Listen, okay, yeah. Narnia is not something that you need to get yourself bent out of shape about. That being said, though, um, this is, falls under Christian liberty, okay? Those of you out there who cannot, in good faith, go and, and watch the Narnia movies, well, don't go. You, I, by all means, don't go. And uh, those of you who, uh, in, in good faith, in faith, say, you know what? This is a great, uh, this is a great movie. Uh, it, it has good themes in it that are that have that have biblical contours that that are worth examining because it deals with faith and trust and temptation and things like that you know and, and that uh, the, these are these are perfect these are great storytelling devices and C.S. Lewis was a Christian anyway you know you know and, and the thing is is that you know there's questions as to whether or not C.S. Lewis was uh you know completely doctrinally you know but no he had some problems but uh, so what okay Let's see if which would I rather have my child watch um, uh, the Barbie movie, you know, find your inner sparkle, or uh, or the Narnia movies. I, I I'll go with Narnia. I'll go with Narnia and uh, and see the thing is is that's the thing. It, you exercise your Christian freedom here. This falls into the category of Christian freedom. You're not sinning if you go. You're not sinning if you don't go. And as long as you have that attitude, that's I think the the the, the tack to take on it. This falls under the category of this is not forbidden by the scripture. There's, so the, as a result of it, we don't want to bind people's consciences, you know, and basically make it sound like, oh, if you go to the, you know, if you go and see the Narnia movie, well, yeah, you're sinning, and God is going to look down on you, and you aren't, in, and you aren't really pleasing to God because you went and saw the Narnia movie. Yeah, then there's a problem. You've got a complete confusion of law and gospel going on in your theology, and you need to clean that up. You know, at the same time, if you're sitting there going, what's wrong with you? How dare you act like it's there's a problem going to see the Narnia movie? What's right? No, there's a problem with your theology when you act that way, too. No, this is pure Christian freedom. If you want to go, go. If you don't want to go, don't go. But if you don't go, don't complain about the people who go. And if you do go, don't complain about and judge the people who don't go. Just... Yeah, this is yeah Christian freedom. Whatever you know, you know that yeah. See what I'm saying? But if you if you really think there's something wrong with it, don't force yourself to go because you're going against your conscience at that point, and that is no bueno. Yeah, you don't want to do that either. So that's it's falls under Christian freedom. Anyway, Liam Neeson has uh, <clears throat> stepped into it. Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> yeah, we Christians can be a cantankerous group of people. <clears throat> Not that I'm ever cantankerous. No, no, <laughs> never. <sighs> My news just grew. Anyway, um, <clears throat> the um, this is written by Roya uh, Nikha, N-I-K Nik Nikha, N-I-K-K-H-A, uh, from the uh, Telegraph in the UK. Liam Neeson has caused controversy by suggesting that Aslan, the Christ-like character in C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, could represent the Prophet Muhammad or Buddha. Yeah, no, that's just not going to work. Uh, the actor whose voice, uh, his voice is the lion in the film uh, adaptations of the books, has angered some fans of the stories who claim he is distorting uh, Lewis's intentions by being politically correct. 
<laughs> no, he's, it's not that he's being politically correct. That's not his problem. It's that he's being theologically silly. Anyway, Aslan the uh, Lion features uh, uh, the Aslan the Lion features in all seven Narnia books, guiding children away from evil and harm and encouraging them to do good. Kind of a moralistic spin on it, but yeah, okay. Uh, Lewis was uh, clear that the As- uh, that Aslan was based on Christ, and once wrote of the character, "quote He is an invention giving an imag- an imaginary answer to the question, what might Christ become like if there were a world like Narnia." Okay. In the climax of the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan sacrifices his life to save Narnia before rising from the dead. You know, it's just, it's a little bit more than just that, but you know, you, you, to be specific, I mean, he specifically is uh, the uh, penal substitute of, um, of uh, Edmund, despite the fact that I think Lewis had, uh, had reservations about the doctrine of penal substitution. Just uh, anyway... Um, Let's see here. Okay, so uh, uh, so uh, the uh, okay, so the uh, in the climax of the first book, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan sacrifices his life to save Narnia before rising from the dead. A plot which is widely believed to represent the crucifixion and resurrection. Yeah, you pretty much have to be blind to to miss that one. But ahead of the release of the Voyage of the Don Turner, the third Narnia book to be made into a film next week, Neeson said, "Quote: Aslan symbolizes a Christ-like figure, but he also symbolizes for me." Those are the important words there. Here, uh, yeah. Whenever you hear somebody says, "Well, let me tell you what it means to me," uh, you know what it means for me. You know the for me part of it. Yeah. See, that's the problem. Is is that um, Liam Neeson here is doing to uh, C.S. Lewis's books um, what most Christians do to the Bible? <laughs> yeah, in their small group studies. Uh, what does this verse mean to you? Oh, well, this verse means to me uh, warm, fuzzy rabbit breath and. Um, and uh, and cute fluffy unicorns and and uh, and rainbows. Anyway, yeah, that's not how we do biblical interpretation, nor is it how we do literary criticism. By the way, unless you're a postmodern. <clears throat> anyway, so let's see here. Aslan symbolizes a Christ-like figure, but he also symbolizes for me Muhammad, Buddha, and all the great spiritual leaders and prophets over the centuries. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's ah, uh, oh, there are many ways to climb. Uh, uh, Mount Narnia. Got it. Okay, so uh, that that's who Aslan stands for, as well as a mentor figure for the kids. That's what he means. Quote for me. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. Thank you, Liam Neeson, for sharing your thoughts. And and quite frankly, um, uh, C.S. Lewis could care less what it means to you because that, that no, it's what the author intended that matters. Um, let me see. Walter Hooper, Lewis's former secretary and a trustee of his estate, said that the author would have been angered by Neeson's comments. <laughs> you think? He said, quote, it's nothing whatever to do with Islam. Lewis would have simply denied that. He wrote that the whole Narnian story is about Christ. Lewis could not have been clearer. Yeah, so yeah, well, what's the point of quoting author's intent? You know, in today's postmodern age, you could just, it doesn't matter what you believe. Anyway, Mr. Hooper attributed Neeson's remarks to political correctness and a wish to be very multicultural. Now, I just think it's just a spiritual and theological ignorance and not knowing how to handle literary works properly. Anyway, um, uh, the folks over the Stand to Reason blog actually chimed in on this, and um, the the name of their blog post is what Aslan means to Liam Neeson. 
Okay, from the Daily Mail interview with actor Liam Neeson, the voice of Aslan in the Narnia films, we get this wonderful quote. Quote, Aslan symbolizes a Christ-like figure, but he also symbolizes for me Muhammad, Buddha, and the great spiritual leaders and prophets over the centuries. Yeah, by the way, did when did, Bo, when did the Buddha ever die and rise again? For people's sins, you know. I just, you know, just wondering. Anyway, that's who Aslan stands for, as well as a mentor figure for the kids. That's what he means for me. Poor Liam Neeson. He can't win. Nope. He probably feels like he has for, uh, to distance himself from the narrow Christian message of the Chronicles of Narnia by recreating Aslan for himself in a more palatable, relativistic form to avoid upsetting the culture at large. And why not? If all that matters is what a text means to us rather than what the author intended that text to mean. But now he has upset Narnia fans, and with good reason, Neeson's image of Aslan as the, quote, god or leader of many different religions is quite explicitly explicitly argued against in the last battle when the Calermenes wrongly claimed that Aslan and Tash, their god, are the same god, calling him Tashlan. Yeah, that's in the book The Last Battle. I recently read that. I saw one person argue that Neeson is somewhat accurate because at the end of the book, Emeth, a Calermene, recognizes Aslan as the Calermene god he's been serving all along, but that isn't quite correct. Emeth doesn't discover that Aslan is Tash, the Calermene god he's been serving. He discovers he wasn't serving the Calermene god at all, but he was instead serving Aslan, a very different god. While while this is a message of inclusivism that I won't in, uh, I don't uh, won't endorse, it's still quite different from saying that Aslan was both of those gods as Emeth discovered. From the uh, book the um, last battle we read Aslan said, "Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service to me. Lord, uh, Emmeth replied, Lord, is it then true, as the ape said, that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook and said, it is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. Now, Muhammad did not pay the ransom for uh, another person's sins, neither did Buddha. Aslan, on the other hand, did this uh, very thing, and this is meant to represent Jesus plain and simple. Yeah, so, um, yeah, isn't it interesting uh, that uh, this little episode, I think, encapsulates the very problems that we have in the church today? I mean, this is exactly what's going on right now, okay? We have people, we've got a Bible, okay? And we can tell by what the author of the Bible wrote. That would be God the Holy Spirit. He's the one singular author who used many different people and inspired them to write the way they did. But God God is the author of Scripture. Okay? And um, we can tell by what he said what his intent was. It's pretty simple. Okay? But yet people, when they approach the Scriptures, because they think it's all about them, and they are grossly mistaken when they think that they approach the scriptures in such a way that they ask themselves the question, what does this mean to me? And then guys like me come along and say, you know, listen, put away that me stuff. Um, that's not what the text says. So here we got Liam Neeson telling us that uh, the Aslan, you know, that the that Aslan for him is uh, both Jesus and, and, and Muhammad. He's Jesus and the Buddha. He's Jesus and other spiritual leaders. And how are people putting down this uh, Narnian heresy by quoting the full text of what the author wrote and what he clearly said that he intended. This little lesson can be uh, applied 
in the church writ large because this is one of the primary reasons why we have so many bad doctrines and theologies running around today because people are subjectively reading the Scripture rather than reading it to discover what the author intended to say. Fun little thing. Okay, let's see here. Um, Oh, boy, do I really want to... Yeah, see, when I, at the beginning of the program, I was sitting there going, yes, yes, no, I was trying to figure out if I really wanted to... Uh, uh, if I really wanted to uh, um, talk about uh, Perry Noble, because um, every time we talk about Perry Noble, um, I have to play the Perry Noble update m- music. So, and that means we're going to talk about oh, really Perry Noble. What I do, Come on, sing what along. I do, as long as, as I, I say it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flare. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a C. All right, yeah, I... (laughs) Yeah, every time uh, we talk about Perry Noble, that, I just... That particular song, I think, just encapsulates him perfectly. All right, from the Christian Post, we read, written by Perry Noble, the headline reads, Can we stop bad-mouthing the future of the church? Oh, give me a break. Oh, yes, that's the big problem in the church today. Everybody's bad-mouthing the future of the church. (laughs) Seriously? Okay, Lately, it's been quite popular to question the future of the church. Could you please give me an example of that, please? Oh, come on. Oh, seriously. I mean, if those of you who are my friends on Facebook, if you could find an example of somebody bad-mouthing and questioning the future of the church. <sighs> Let me give me some examples of what he thinks that means. The way we're doing church is not going to always work. Don't! Oh! Go, go, got to invent new ways or we're going, or we're in trouble. Duh! The next generation is going to reject our methods of doing church. Duh! I could go on and on. However, I'm finally coming to the conclusion that the church is going to be fine if she will continue to focus on Jesus, preaching his word, doing ministry and power of the Holy Spirit, praying like crazy, refusing to be boring, continuing to take huge steps of faith and practice, practicing extreme generosity. Now, I want to point this out here. Um, did you notice that there was an if in there? Yeah. <clears throat> Ready? Let me read the sentence again. I could go on and on. However, I am finally coming to the conclusion that the church is going to be fine if. Hmm. So the church is going to be fine if she will continue. If she. Hmm. Didn't Jesus say, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age? Hmm. I get the feeling the church is going to be fine because um, 
Christ is the Lord of the church. And when individual congregations go apostate and die, like they should if they do go apostate, um, um, the church continues on because Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's in charge of it, not the church. Christ is in charge of the church. Yeah. <clears throat> so that little if kind of makes it very interesting that um, the church is going to be fine if the church, if, if, no, 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 the church is going to be fine because Christ, Christ has got, he's under, he's got it under control. Serious. He knows what he's doing. <sighs> Here we go. <clears throat> Perry Noble continues, says the church will not just survive. She will thrive if the church, uh, when she gets pushed underground, she flourishes. Yeah, she does, and I'm kind of hoping that maybe the church gets pushed underground here in the United States because when the church gets pushed underground, the megachurches won't flourish because the megachurches are all about meeting felt needs and Christianity isn't. Anyway, when she, the church, gets hit in the face, she always gets back up. Mm -hmm, Yeah, she is still God's plan. Yes, the church is God's plan. She is beautiful. You bet she is. And when she's hitting on all cylinders, there's nothing in the world that can compare to her power and potential. Yeah, not sure what you're talking about there. The purpose of the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to make disciples, administer the word and sacraments, you know, things like that. Um, Power and potential. Potential to do what? Yes, the way we do church will change. Yeah, see, seriously? Okay, your job, pastor, is to preach the word. How many different ways can you do that? Hmm? You know, I mean, you say the way we do church is going to change, but see, the purpose of the church, you know, the the job of the pastor is to preach the word. So how many different ways are you going to do that? You know, because you got to change it up, right? Hmm. And we don't, and we don't need to freak out about that fact or how in the world the next generation will do church. They've always discovered what it takes to reach their own kind. Mm-hmm. We just need to fund it instead of fight it. Rip. <clears throat> so we. So any guy who's got some new vision about how we need to do church, we just need to fund it rather than fight it. Yeah, I don't think so. We need to take a look and say, yeah, is this methodology consistent with what God says? Uh, does it recognize the fact that people are pagan and repentant sinners and the reason they come to church has nothing to do with whether or not you have an organ or a rock band or anything? The The reason why they come to church is because they're repentant sinners who need to hear God's word and to uh, hear about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. <sighs> anyway, so there we go. Uh, Perry Noble. Um, uh, Tulin Chavidjian... Tev- uh, um, yeah, he's got a brand new article that just came out today uh, at the Christian Post. Also, uh, you know, he writes there uh, called The Gospel and the Law. Uh, and here's what he writes. And this is a good article. It says, back in May, I posted an interview that my friend Justin Taylor did with me for my book, Surprised by Grace. Since the book is essentially an outworking of the gospel in the life of Christians, Justin asked me a few questions about the gospel and the law, especially as it relates to Christian motivation. Even though I posted this only five and a half months ago, I thought it might answer questions that some have asked with regard regard to Sinclair Ferguson's quote that I posted the other day on the gospel on gospel and sanctification. So here's the question. Is the gospel a middle ground between legalism and lawlessness? 
Now, I have my own answer, but I want to see what Tulian t- uh, says here. He says, he says, this seems to be a common misunderstanding in the church today. I hear people say that there are two equal dangers Christians must avoid, legalism and lawlessness. This is true. Legalism, they say, happens when you focus too much on law or rules. Lawlessness, they say, is when you focus too much on grace. Therefore, in order to maintain spiritual equilibrium, you have to balance law and grace. Legalism and lawlessness are typically presented as two ditches on either side of the gospel that we must avoid. If you start getting too much law, you need to balance it with grace. Too much grace, you need to balance it with law. But I've come to believe that this balanced way of framing the issue can outwittingly keep us from really understanding the gospel of grace in all of its depth and beauty. I'd like to see what he says about this further, but let me, let me, let me answer it this way. I'm a firm believer that you, you want to avoid the ditches of legalism and lawlessness. But I think the, the, the idea here is, is that you have to keep law and gospel in tension uh, the idea, think of it this way, is, is if you stretch a guitar string across a road and you tighten that thing up to where you, you, you pluck it, it goes boing, you know, you, you, get, you hear the sound, okay? Uh, the idea here is, is that in the middle of the road then, you know, would be, you know, on one half it's law, the other half it's gospel. And you end up in the ditch when you cut the tension, you have to keep tension between law and gospel. And it's not a 50-50 proposition. It's not like, okay, you know, I, 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 pastor, you know, you weigh out, you write out your sermon, you type it up on your word processor or your computer, and you print it out. And then you, what you do is you take the pages that have the law and you put them on, on one side and you take the passages that have the gospel and put them on another. And then you have to weigh them out. And you got to make sure that, you know, they, they're, they're, there's equal number of words. And, you know, no, it's not like that, okay? Law and gospel have to stay in tension. They stay connected. And and when you do that, Christianity sings rather nicely, and so does the gospel. So the idea there is that you don't want to cut the tension. And there is a danger, and what happens is is that in the legalism department— that uh, what happens is is that you lose uh, what you you lose that tension when the gospel is only for the first the the non-believers. Oh, I don't need to hear the gospel. I made the decision for Jesus, you know, f- uh, fifteen years ago. What do I need the gospel for? Because uh, you sinned yesterday, uh, you sinned today. Yeah, that's why you need the gospel. You need to hear it. The gospel has to stay in the center. And so legalism, you know, you start drifting towards legalistic, pharisaical stuff when you cut that. You cut the tension between the law and the gospel, and you make it so that the gospel is only for believers, uh, not only not only for believers. I'm sorry, only for unbelievers. So so the guy can hear that Jesus died for their sins, so they can somehow jump into the fun park of all the legalistic work that you got to do. Yeah, that's that's how you end up in that ditch. On the other side of it, though, the other side of it is is that uh, you, yeah, the folks that end up in the light, uh, lawlessness category, they cut the tension between law and gospel, and they side on, uh, the, oh, it's all grace. God is love. You see, God is just love. And see, he wouldn't hurt a fly. You know, and, and so what happens is is that and you say, wait, wait a second, have you read the Ten Commandments? Oh, that's in the Old Testament. We... We don't need to listen to the old uh, to the Ten Commandments. We're we're we we not we're now free to just love. Come here, give me a hug. And you sit there and go, get away from me, you freak! I don't know who you are. <laughs> don't touch me. You know, and, and so you want to avoid both those things. So you keep law and gospel in tension. In fact, what I would recommend: get Concordia's new book, uh, Law and Gospel: How to Read and Apply the Bible by C. F. W. Walther. They have a reader's edition of this book. It's fantastic, and it shows you how to keep the two in tension. You, you, you just got to keep—you preach the law for all it's worth. I mean, you let Sinai rip. I mean, you let the peals of thunder, the lightning, all of that stuff just go and, and to the point where people are going, Nah! I'm undone! 
Right. That's how you're supposed to preach the law. But as soon as people go, I'm undone, you, you stop and you go, now let me tell you about the grace of Christ. Let me tell you about Christ dying for your sins because you obviously, are, you are just, you are a wretched sinner in need of God's grace. And that's the best part. Christ died for all of that. Okay. So the idea here is that um, you, you, in, in, in some senses, and this is why you need a pastor not some video presence, okay? Listen to me on this point. You need a pastor, okay? Because your pastor, when he knows you, part of his job is to assess, okay, what's going on in in Joe's life? What's going on in Sally's life, okay? Maybe, you know, because if your pastor's truly a shepherd, okay, he's going to know that Joe, you know, he's a little bit smug and a little self-confident, and, uh, and you know... um, as a result of it, um, yeah, he he needs. There's some things in his life that he needs to have the two by four of the law just smack him upside the head. And so his the pastor's job is to smack Joe upside the head with the law at that point. And uh, you know, and you know, and, and in some senses, tailor back the gospel a little bit until Joe really goes, "Wow, I'm in trouble!" Right now, let me tell you about the gospel. Okay, now Sally, on the other hand, she might be one of those smoldering wick folks. You know, she's been hurt and abused, and, and the law has, done, has run its its course in her life, and she struggles with despair and thinking, oh, man, I've just done so much evil. I don't know if God can love me. I, 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 don't, I, just, I don't think I, that I can get into heaven because I've just done so much bad. You know, that's like that's somebody who the flame is about to go out, and, you, and you don't, they don't need more law. They need the gospel. <laughs> like, ah, the, go- the law has done its work. Quick, get them with the gospel. Get to the gospel with them. So, um, yeah, I think that's, um, anyway, that's how I would put it. Um, so maybe I'll read more of uh, Tullian Tavigian's art. He's not a Lutheran, so, you know, it's, you know I, I like to see evangelicals trying to struggle with law and gospel. It's, it's a great thing. Uh, but um, anyway, we're, we're up on our, <laughs> our second break. When we come back, sermon review time. You don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on uh, this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. (laughs) And just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Heading back down to the South Pacific, down to New Zealand, to Auckland, New Zealand. Our listeners down there are enjoying the season turning to summer, while we up here in the Northern Hemisphere are experiencing snow. (laughs) No fuzzy bunny slippers for you listening down there in the South Pacific. That would be really bad. Unless you cut the toes open, but that kind of would like be like beheading the uh, fuzzy bunnies. You don't want to do that. That's frightening to think about. Let's do our sermon review. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Life Church in Auckland, New Zealand. Pastor Paul De Jong presiding. Now, I don't know the name of the. I think it's. Uh, what is it? Naturally Supernatural is the name of the sermon. Now, here's what I want you to listen for. Pay close attention to how Paul handles God's word. I should say mishandles. What he does, I want to deconstruct it so you can see the problems with it. He quotes a verse out of context and then begins to make extrapolations based upon that out-of-context verse in order to build his theology. His theology is not biblical theology, and not only that, if you were to read the New Testament, let's just say pick the New Testament and say you're going to read the New Testament from beginning to end between now and Thanksgiving, uh, not Thanksgiving, but Christmas morning, okay? Which is doable. That's actually a doable thing you wouldn't be able to find this theology in the New Testament at all because the apostles didn't teach it. Uh, the prophets didn't teach it. Jesus didn't teach it. 
Um, Moses didn't teach it. This theology is not found taught this way in the scriptures. And on top of it, if you go back into the writings of the early church, like you were to take uh, uh, Philip Schaff's Schaff's, uh, uh, volume one of the uh, Antinacian Fathers, you know, which picks up writings from the church fathers in the late first century and on into the early second century, you couldn't find any of the early church fathers speaking this way or preaching this theology. Why? This isn't biblical Christianity. So I really, really want to focus on here is taking apart how he mishandles God's word so that our listeners down there in Auckland can see for themselves this is not what the Bible teaches. And so uh, you're going to need your Bible uh, with you. If you haven't got one, you're going to need it because we're going to be hopping around as uh, Paul DeJong hops around and basically asking simple biblical hermeneutical questions. Is this what the text really says? So without any further ado, here is Paul DeJong, Life Church, Auckland, uh, New Zealand. Here we go. Well, it's good to be alive. We want to welcome everyone from each of the locations around Auckland. Good to see you this morning and uh, good to have you a part of what God is doing. And we've got a noisy group of people here at the Court of Nine. And uh, that's quite a miracle in itself, actually, because you never know what happens this early in the morning. But each of the locations, God is good. We're going to continue today on this series, and I really want to bring it to somewhat of a conclusion, although you can't. Because over the last month and a half, thereabouts, we've been addressing this thought of being naturally supernatural. And uh, I think from the birth of time, inbred into the heart of every human being is the fact that we want to be a superhero. Come on, why is... No, what if I don't want to be a superhero? I mean, the fact be told, I don't want to be a superhero. I don't want the responsibility. I don't want to have to worry about getting. Uh, I don't want to. Ha- I don't want to wear tights. It's true. I mean, considering the fact that I'm still an uh, um, an underweight fat guy, yeah, I would be arrested for public obscenity if I wore tights. So it's just, I don't want to. I don't want to have a secret identity. It's just too much work. Since the birth of time, the comics have always been about somebody that could do something supersonic. And I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about it, but I had that thought this week that as Christians, we are wired to become the superhero. Look at the person next to you and say, I love your cape. Where in the Bible does it say that we're wired to be superheroes? I, I read passages of Scripture that say things like, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And children, obey and honor your parents. And uh, work quietly with your hands. And uh, um, that, I mean, Christianity calls you to be satisfied uh, with loving God and serving your neighbor in the place where God has put you. Whether that's garbage man, whether that's CEO, whether that's doctor or nurse or... Somebody who is a fast order cook at a fast food restaurant. All of those are great ways to love and serve your neighbor, to work quietly with your hands and to... Yeah, <clears throat> yeah so I, I'm, I'm just not seeing the um, superhero part in the Bible. 
But we continue. I love your biceps. No, maybe we won't go there. Wonder Woman may be in the house. But if you're visiting today, no matter where we're located, we have been talking about Christianity 101 and the challenge for all of us to make sure we keep coming back to the essence. So easy to get distracted with all of the things around us. Even in Christendom, it's great to be connected with Jesus and we are connected through forgiveness, but today we're empowered. We're not just connected in relationship, but actually we uh, carry rather the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was Paul the apostle that said, make sure that you don't get fooled into the trap of the last day Christian church that will have a form of godliness, but actually will deny its power. Okay, stop right there. Okay, he's not citing where he got this from, and he's quoting it out of context. So we've got to find this passage, you know, uh, deny the power thereof. Hang on a second here. Let me look this up. Here it is. It's in uh, 2 Timothy, <clears throat> Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 is the uh, relevant one. But remember our three rules for sound biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. So let's put this back in its context. And so the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to read all of 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is the immediate context. And if you want the greater context, you need to read, go back and reread all of 2 Timothy. But uh, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3 together. I will begin at verse 1, and I'll be reading from the ESV translation. I lovingly refer to it as the English sanctified, but it's actually the English standard. But uh, we read, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, I'm going to point something out to you. As you read this list, it it's easy to say, well, hasn't, it, I mean, people of all times have been this way. Yes, people, uh, unsaved people has been, have been this way from the beginning, since the fall of Adam and Eve. But what Paul here is, is arguing against is against these people who are in the church. You go, well, how do you know that he's talking about this would be the way people would be in the church? Real simple, because it says in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. The, the, the world does not appear godly at all. Okay, so what we're talking about here is, is a condition that's coming in the church. And this you can cross-reference this with other passages that discuss uh, what historically Christianity has called the great apostasy, the coming great apostasy. And uh, this is the, the great rebellion against sound doctrine and, uh, and God's word, in the visible church, where there'll be false prophets, false Christs, false miracles. So let's go back and reread this section now with that understanding. Understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Listen again. These people in the church will always be learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. With persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Now, having read this now in context, what is Paul saying? When we read this in context, Paul is saying, to avoid people who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power, how do you identify them? They are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not lovers of the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are people who do not know the scriptures, have a form of godliness, and deny the power of it. They are always learning, but never able to arrive at a solid understanding of the truth. That's what Paul is warning us about here. Now, you notice Paul de Jong, he completely took this verse out of context. And let's see how he decides that he's going to interpret or um, try to interpret this uh, this passage. I, I, I'll back it up just a smidge. Here we go. Fooled into the trap of the last day Christian church that will have a form of godliness, but actually will deny its power. And as we've seen already, literally just kind of see the power as a side issue, not the center, not the cause. What power is he referring to? If when we, since we read this in context, the power that Paul's referring to is the power of sound doctrine, the power of the scriptures to, uh, that, that are profitable to equip the man of God for every good work. That's, well, let's continue. And John 14, which has really been the catalyst scripture are the words of Jesus, verse 12, where Jesus says, hey, again, very verily, verily, or most assuredly, 
I want to say to you, I want you to realize that the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Okay, now stop. Notice what he did here. He took a passage out of context from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, ripped it out of context, and now he's setting this next to John chapter 14, verse 12. And he's basically saying that there's a direct correlation between these two passages. Well, let's check that out in context. Uh, John chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, flip on over there. And uh, let's see, verse 12 is what he said is the passage. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to read the, the immediate context, and um, it starts at verse 8. Here we go. John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me uh, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, which is the big qualifier there, whatever you ask in Jesus' name. That does not mean that Jesus' name, by the way, is some kind of um, you know, magic, magical potion words that you stick at the end of a prayer. You know, oh Lord, I um, I ask for a Mercedes Benz, and I know that I'll give it. You'll give it to me because I'm praying this in Jesus' name. There it is. And so you go outside and look in your driveway to see if a Mercedes Benz fell out of the sky. The answer is no. A Mercedes Benz will not fall out of the sky just because you tacked on the words in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer or your petition or your commandment does not mean that God is beholden to give it to you. Whatever you ask in my name, in my name, think cross-reference to this when we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So when we pray to the Lord, thy kingdom come, your will be done. When, we pray, when we're praying things in the name of Christ, we're praying things in, the, in his name, according to his will. So whatever we pray that is in accordance with his will and according to his name, that will further his kingdom, and that is the thing that he will do for us. So whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, Anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor does it know him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps and guards them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Okay? So is when Jesus is saying that you're going to do greater works, what is he referring to there? Is he saying that uh, we're going to be able to, uh, you know, jump into space 
and you'll you know bound around and do these fantastic. That's not exactly what he's talking to. The greater works that we're going to be doing are the are the are the works the greater works that need to be done in accordance with his will and according to his name. And the reality is is that when you preach the word and you know people repent and are brought to the forgiveness of sins, that is the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit that is at work. Okay, but notice what he did. He took. Second, uh, Second Timothy, uh, out of context, and then he stuck it next to this verse, and he's doing some kind of teaching, supposedly about the power being the Holy Spirit power. And yet, we know from Jesus' teaching, also in John, that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and unbelief. That's one of the things we know that the Holy Spirit will do. Hmm... I'm beginning to think that Paul DeJong here is not giving us the straight story of what the Scriptures teach. Let's continue. Greater works than the ones that I do, he will do. Why? Because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I kind of think sometimes we read Scriptures like this and we go, yeah, that's cool, we know that, but do we really carry it? where we're actually looking for a greater expression of the supernatural in our everyday life, a greater manifestation. That's not what that text is saying, that we should expect a greater manifestation of the supernatural in our lives. That's not what that says. Go back. What does it mean when you pray or ask for anything in my name? Of the promise that Jesus gave us, and he said it's happening or it's going to happen Why? Because I'm going back to the Father and the Holy Spirit is coming to you as a helper and he will abide with you and be in you forever. And this whole thought of it's not just about me and about a relationship with me, but it's about being in me and, and the creative resident power of the Holy Spirit is now for all of you. And, and it's the authority, and this is what I love, of the Holy Spirit that enables us to step into the God zone. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit enables us to step into the God zone. Notice he's not exegeting any passages to really tell us about this God zone stuff. If you want to see what the God zone looks like biblically, go into Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit falling with power on the uh, on the disciples. And they begin to speak in other languages, and people who are visiting Jerusalem from all parts of the Mediterranean world are hearing the wonders of God and the gospel preached in their own language by a bunch of Galileans. And they think, how is this even possible? And what does Peter do? He preaches this amazing sermon. And at the end of it, they are cut to the heart, and they say, brothers, what shall we do? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The big, the big miracle on Pentecost was the preaching of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit causes the hearers to be broken, to despair of their own self-righteousness, and to ask, brothers, what shall we do when Peter says, repent? Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children. That's the big miracle that took place at Pentecost. Thousands were brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the big miracle. 
And here's the question I have for you. Where in where in the Gospels do we hear of, you know, 3,000 people repenting and being forgiven of their sins all in one day through the preaching of Jesus? Jesus on his best day didn't have any results like this. Is this greater, a greater work than Jesus did? You bet, bet it is. So if you want to see what the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit looks like, what you're looking for is the preaching of the gospel. And the miracles that occur around that point to the truthfulness of the gospel. They, are, they help to bear witness that the people who are preaching the gospel are speaking the truth. Because it's all about Christ. It's all about the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Paul DeJong here is preaching some kind of spirit that is divorced from the proclamation of Jesus Christ. This, uh, we're looking for some power out there that, you know, the, so we can operate in the supernatural. Again, I come back to my, my challenge. Um, read the New Testament. Read the whole thing from beginning to end, from Matthew chapter 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, or the book of Maps, if you really think that's where the end of the Bible is. Read from uh, Matthew chapter 1 to the book of Maps, and then ask yourself this question. Where is this teaching that Paul DeJong is, is laying out? Where is this clearly taught out? It's not. You see, one of the things that you have to understand when it comes to biblical doctrine, you can't create a a Christian doctrine unless the doctrine itself is clearly taught or is a direct, direct implication of what the text is saying, okay? So when we talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, that's a doctrinal summary. And the answer then is, is, can that, is that summary an accurate summary of what the biblical text clearly teaches? Answer, yes, it is. It can be defended from the clear passages of the Bible. This doctrine that uh, Paul DeJong here is uh, preaching, I, I don't see this anywhere. So at the very first message, you remember that Joel, home, was with us, and he talked about the two realities that often we feel like, well, who are we? We can't. It's great to read the Bible, great to be inspired by a word. But he said, we've got to move from the fact that I can't to the revelation that he is able. That actually we're going to keep realizing it. He's able to do what? God does work miracles. I mean, seriously. God is capable of doing things that will boggle your mind. We're talking about the God who created the universe, all that we see and experience in nature in six days. Yeah, God is capable of some amazing things. But the question is, what has God promised to do for us? What are his promises to us right now? It's not about who we are. It's about the God that we serve. And from there, we moved forward. Not just, I can't, but the feeling of, I'm all alone. And how often we do in our everyday material world go, well, I know God can, but actually I feel so alone. I don't feel as connected to God as I should be. I don't even feel as connected to God's people as I should be. But we've got to move from the I'm all alone feeling to the fact that he is here. 
Come on, we're celebrating the fact that the Holy Spirit is here right now. You, you might say, well, I don't actually believe in God. Do you know what? The Holy Spirit's here right now. God is with us, and we understand that. But we don't just park at, I'm all alone, to he is here. But then we realize, obviously, that he is here. And from he is here, we've got to see. And we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. And I'm getting very good at this, aren't I? Pulling all these signs off. I'm getting confused myself a little bit. To the fact that he leads me. So it's not just that, okay, God's with me by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this week, he leads me right now. Today, if I left carrying the revelation that he's here, then I'm going to be looking for him to lead me. That actually, he's the one that wants to direct my path. And that whole challenge, again, as we saw in Jeremiah, that God is the one that takes us to a point where his power is on us. But I've been thinking this week, as I want to bring it to a conclusion, and even though we know that he leads me, we still come back, well, I do at least, to this feeling of, but I'm just me. I'm just me. In fact, on the stage here at Central, we have got on the far picture a, a Christmas tree that's standing on its own. In fact, here in Central, in the foyer, we've got a Christmas tree that's fully lit up and has a lot of color attached to it. And of course, here's the frame of a window. And as you look through the window, there's a Christmas tree. And we've done it because this month is a month where we lead into Christmas. And of course, the tree is a key symbol to Christmas. And biblically, the tree is where Christ died. And yet many of us feel like this tree, even though we might praise and we might say amen, but we really know who we are better than anyone else. And we feel like, well, I'm just me. Yet today I want to introduce the thought that God never looks at you as a just you. Even though we realize he's here and we realize he leads us, he actually wants us to hear something completely different, which is the fact that not only does he lead us, but he wants us to realize that this is it from his perspective. You release me. Okay, yeah, you heard that right. According to Paul here, Jesus is looking up at heaven, looking at us going, hey, you're the ones that release me. Hmm, sounds like a powerless genie, doesn't it? You know, poor Jesus stuck in heaven, you know, waiting to be released. You actually are not just a tree that has no power to do anything. You might feel I'm just me, I'm just... If I like to use a bit of rhyming, I'm just a tree. I'm just a nobody. I'm just a nothing. And God says, no, 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 no. You've got to realize naturally supernatural when Jesus said in John 14, you've got to do or you will do greater works is because you're the one that now releases me. And I was thinking about this word. Okay, where in the Bible does, that, does it say that? Where in the scripture does it say that, well, you know, Jesus, you know that we're released by Jesus? Release as I was preparing for this message, and I thought, well, maybe we should change it to the fact that you reveal me. But I think that's where we get stuck. I think we realize we reveal Jesus, but I don't know we get our heads around the fact that we release him. 
you know what? Hang on a second here. I've got to look something up. I think it's in Romans 10. I just want to make sure it's there. This sounds so close, but it's it's missing a very important um, uh, part. And uh, if you have your Bible, um, flip on over to Romans chapter 10. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 5. I'm going to read uh, quite a bit in here. And I, and, I, the, and I want you to hear what the Bible teaches on this correctly so that you can compare what he's saying to what the Scriptures say. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the, righteous, uh, but the righteousness that is based on faith says, Do not say in your hearts who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or declared righteous, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Or how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. I want to come back to verse 20. God is speaking. I have been found by those who did not seek me. God speaking. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Okay. We are called to be heralds of the gospel. We are sent by God, commissioned by God to go and proclaim the good news. Some hear and repent and have saving faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Others hear and they continue and in, in, in persist in their, in their sinful unbelief. Why? I don't know. It just says that that's the case. But no one can come to faith unless somebody is sent. So who is the one who does the sending? God does. God does the sending. God does the sending so that people will hear and so that they will believe, so that they will repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. God is the one who commissions his herald. Now, the way that uh, Paul here is, Paul DeJong is talking, um, kind of puts us in the driver's seat. The biblical understanding is is that Christians are called, justified, sanctified, and sent by God. In Paul DeJong's theology, apparently God is up there waiting for us to release him. That puts us in the driver's seat. That's a complete misreading and misunderstanding of Scripture. We continue. Like, 
I am the light of the world, Jesus said. I am the salt of the earth. Jesus was saying, yeah, I was the light of the world, but you're the one that determines the level of light. You're the one that... No, that's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus is the light of the world. He didn't say, I was the light of the world, and now you get to determine the level of light. That's nowhere taught in Scripture. Listen, to, I'm going to back this up a smidge. Listen again to what he just said, and watch how he mishandles this text. Release him. Like, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. I am the salt of the earth. Jesus was saying, yeah, I was the light of the world, but you're the one that determines the level of light. You're the one that determines the level of seasoning or the, the, the level of conditioning that keeps things where they are. And I, I've been thinking about that and I'm thinking... Really, where does, where does Jesus say you determine the level of light? Show me one, one, just one verse that says that. In context. See, this is 180 degrees backwards. It puts us in the driver's seat, not God. It makes us the sovereigns, not God. And if we want to, we can all conspire together and we can just decide we're going to keep the dark, the lights completely out. We're not going to let the light of Jesus shine. And God would be completely powerless to do anything to stop us, wouldn't he? God, that's a huge challenge because I'm coming to realize even in Genesis 1, 26, what did God said? God said, let us make man what? In our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle over the earth, over every creeping thing. So God created you, created me in his image. And in the image of God, he created him. He created a male and female and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and every living thing. In other words, God was setting us up for the time in history where we had to move from this feeling of, I'm just me, I'm just a Okay, that text in Genesis has nothing to do with your feeling about saying, oh, it's just me. That has nothing to do with it. It's a completely disconnected passage. He's reading things into that Genesis passage that are not there at all. Aaron Tree, I, I really cannot do much, whereas God said, no, 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 no. You are now the representation of the kingdom of heaven on earth and you release me. So that, if that's true, then the enemy is working no matter where. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Where in the Bible does it say that we release God? It nowhere says that. And so watch what he does here. He's now got a false statement out there, which is an incorrect reading and not even a valid biblical conclusion from any of the texts that he's read that we release God. And now watch what he's doing. So he starts with a text out of context, draws an incorrect inference from that out of context passage. And now he's going to make an inference from that incorrect inference. So we're building, you know, false teaching upon false teaching, false precept upon false precept, and we're building now a theological house of cards that has nothing to do with the sound teaching of God's Word. We live, no matter where we work, no matter what we do in our lives, to keep us contained, and yet Jesus said, greater things than I did will you do. Why? Because you're not just a revealer of me, you're a releaser of me. Now, if that is true, 
Boy, just because you say it a few times doesn't mean that it's actually taught in the Bible, Paul. Notice at this point, he's just... He's going to repeat his false statement. What the Bible says, nothing of the sort. And you can be assured all of hell's going to come against you and keep you from releasing the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's like he came against Jesus to squash him 2,000 years ago to stop him from going to the cross because he knew that the moment he fulfilled his commission, heaven was released to humanity. So too... In the church, we've become so dormant and we've become so small-minded and we don't realize we're the link. Now, don't write me off. I'm not saying we're God. I'm saying we have been commissioned by God to be his full release. Now, that's challenging. Uh, It's challenging, all right, because the Bible doesn't ever say anything like that. Show me one clear passage that says what he just said. Let me back it up so you can hear it again. Here we go. Fulfilled his commission. Heaven was released to humanity. So too in the church, we've become so dormant and we've become so small-minded and we don't realize we're the link. Now don't write me off. I'm not saying we're God. I'm saying we have been commissioned by God to be his full release. Now, Where does the Bible say that? Your theology does put us in the driver's seat, sir. Now, that's challenging. Because then if I don't be the light, the light doesn't shine. Jesus is the light of the world. Yeah, but you say, yeah, but God does it. God does it, but he's chosen in our season of history to do it through you and me. Um, where is this taught in the Bible? Show me where this theology is taught in the New Testament, the ancient church, and through all of Christian history. So then I started thinking about Genesis. I've got the verses on screen. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and void darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Listen to this. And God said, what did he say? Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it be divided or let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament. Divided the waters that were under the firmament from the waters that were above. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw... Okay, now notice he's, he's reading the Genesis narrative of the creation. That's perfectly fine and a good thing to do in church. But watch the inferences he makes from the text that are not said in the text. That it was good. God was and is good, but listen to this. Goodness was a created entity. 
Wow, uh, that's really bad. Um, really, goodness is a created entity. W- where was goodness created in the f- uh, first chapter of Genesis? The text doesn't say that, sir. We continue. God was and is good, but listen to this. Goodness was a created entity. God saw through the creation process that goodness expanded. Really, which text says that again? Are you are you are you using the Perry Noble uh, hermeneutical method, seeing text the, the subtext in the text by sticking your the Bible passage in a hat and waiting for the green letters to show up? Which passage says any of this? It, this this is not even a valid conclusion from the text at all. You're sticking stuff in there, sir. And when I began to meditate on it, I began to say, God, I feel often like. I'm so limited by me and I'm limited by the lack of who I am, but I need to stop and I need to gaze on this revelation that you, speaking to me, release God. And I look at that and if I'm made in the image of God and I'm made under the wonder of Yahweh, the self-existent one, then I've got to take a new level of responsibility to become an effective channel for the supernatural. Notice the law here. Where in the Bible does it say that we need to take responsibility to become more effective channels of releasing God? If that's what God wants us to do, don't you think he would have revealed that in his word in no uncertain terms and using clear, clear phrases, using, you know, nouns and verbs and pronouns and adverbs and adjectives and subordinate clauses to communicate to us Oh, humanity, oh, you Christians out there, because you've been created in the image of God, it's important that you take responsibility to become a more effective channel of releasing me because I'm stuck up here in heaven. And, and uh, you know, the only, uh, you know, you're now the light of the world and, uh, you know, I'll let my light shine through you, but you get to choose how bright the light is. Don't you think God would have said that if that's what he intended to teach us? How is it that Paul DeJong, you know, really kind of one of the few people I've ever heard say anything remotely even like this, where did he get this information from? It's not taught in Genesis 1. It's not taught in any of the passages that he quoted, 2 Timothy 3, John 14. None of that is actually taught there when you read those passages in context. One, then I've got to take a new level of responsibility to become an effective channel for the supernatural. How much of God do others get through me? Unbelievable. So if I look through the archway or through the window and see a tree that's distant and I have had no connection with God and I see there's a reflection of a God somewhere, but if that tree were to move beyond the framework and be a releasing channel of the wonder of the supernatural, how much of the world would begin to change? Uh, How do trees move again? Do trees have feet? Therefore, the enemy has compressed the mandate on the church and stopped us from realizing that God is received through us. We were just in Melbourne and then in Perth and then Brisbane over the... That's like only partially true. 
How can they believe if somebody isn't sent? How can they believe in one they haven't heard? That's why God commissions preachers, people who will proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This, by the way, what is this doing? It's taking our eyes completely off of Christ and what he's done for us, and it puts my focus purely back on me. I need to become a more responsible uh, channel of the supernatural. I've got to do this. I've got to, you know, and so we're off in, in bizarro land here, you know, because um, where where do I get the roadmap on, on how to become a more effective uh, releaser of God? Where are those passages of Scripture that explain how to do that? Yeah, see, they're not there. Last week and a half, and uh, Marie was out one day in Brisbane, and she said, oh, you should have seen this guy that was on the street corner. I said, what, what was he doing? She said he was sitting there with an out-of-tune guitar singing old Christian songs that made no sense whatsoever, and then he would rant and rave about the fact of the God he believed in, and he says, she said it was the most non-identifiable kind of presentation of who God was that you could ever see. Now, I'm sure the guy means well, amen? But it's like, is he being a channel of God or a roadblock to the things that God wants to do? And I think we could look at that. I should just ask you the same question, Paul. Are you being an effective channel of God? I haven't heard God's word correctly handled once in this sermon yet. So I have to come to the conclusion that because you're not rightly handling God's word and preaching those things that are in accord with sound biblical doctrine, with solid inferences, solid and defensible inferences from the texts in context, that you are actually the one being a roadblock to God. Rather than getting light from you, I'm, not get, I'm just getting pure darkness. And say, well, yeah, he needs to get with it. If he can, can't sing, don't sing, baby. Come on. If you're not called to do it, don't think you're going to do You do what God's called you to do. But you know, each one of us can be like that because of our lack of understanding that actually God says, you release me. You release me. That's what you do. You release me. And this whole thought of... Where does it say that in the Bible? Creation and the creation cycle. In the beginning was the heavens and the uh, earth, and the earth was without form. But God, what did he do? And there are five things that I felt like God began to say to me about how... Mm, Five things that he felt like God began to say to him. Ah, okay, so we're dealing with, uh, we're not dealing with just the Bible here. We've got a competing revelation source. The competing revelation source is what he thinks God is telling him. So, all right, uh, pull out uh, pull out a piece of paper, and you need to write down these five things. And when we're done, you need to add it to the, the end of your Bible. We'll call this the Epistle of Paul de Jong. The Epistle of Paul de Jong. Because God's speaking directly to him, and so we have to come to the conclusion that this is Scripture that we're hearing, uh, that God directly revealed to Paul de Jong. We become supernatural from the natural. It's called the creation cycle. What was it that God did? The first- okay, so the creation cycle. This is Paul de Jong's special revelation directly from God, the creation cycle. Uh, this, so in our epistle to the Christian churches in the world... From Paul de Jong, uh, Paul de Jong, a self-appointed uh, prophet of God to the churches of the world. Here are the five things that you need to do to release God 
Um, and this is called the creation cycle. Got it. Okay, yeah, all right. So th- when you're done, you need to add this uh, to uh, to the end of your Bible, to the end of the New Testament. So this falls right after the book of Revelation, the epistle of Paul de Jong. Got it. Okay. Uh, I'm hip with that. All right. Let's continue. What was it that God did? The first thing that God did is God said. And if we're going to become supernatural in our natural state and be a full channel of God, first thing we've got to make sure that we understand God began creation by saying something. All right, so God said. All right, so God said. That's the first part thing that you need to understand in the creation cycle is that, well, God said. Yeah, um, but uh, here's the deal is that uh, I'm not God. And even though uh, humanity is created in the image of God, nowhere does the Scripture say that, um, well, whatever you say is the thing that happens. Because remember, even when we pray, we pray to God in a subservient manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's continue. God said, let there be light. And what? There was light. And again, the power of the word was the first thing that we read in Scripture. No, it's not the power of the word. It's the power of God. Whose words were those? It said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice he's putting the emphasis on the words that God spoke. The emphasis of the text is on the speaker. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He's putting the emphasis on the fact that God spoke. Yeah, the power is not in the words. The power is in the one speaking the words. That's what the text says. Let's continue. God said, let there be light. And what? There was light. And again, the power of the word was the first thing that we read in Scripture that began the creation of what wasn't to what is. And I reckon the church has got to get a revelation on the power of word. No, we have a revelation of the power of God. My senior pastor for many years was Pastor Frank Houston. And oh, I see. Um, Hillsong, got it. And he told the story hundreds of times like you do when you're preaching a lot. But he recounted when he was a little boy when one of the school teachers said to him, Frank, you'll never amount to anything. And how much of a major challenge that became for him over many, many years because of a spoken word. See, we're going to not move from this place of feeling, well, I'm just me and getting a revelation that actually God says, you release me. Then I don't want to go, well, God, how did you operate? Well, God said, let there be light. God spoke into being. Verse 6, God said, let the firmament in the... Yeah, notice the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Here's how he's saying it. God spoke and it happened. The way that the, the passage reads is God spoke. And it happened. The power is not in the word. The power is in the one who spoke the words. 
And if somebody says to you, you're not going to amount to anything, you basically say, who are you to say that? Your words have no power because you have no power. I mean, seriously, this sounds like magic. This sounds like the mind science cult. You know, Mary Baker Eddy, you know, you know, what is it, science and key to the scriptures or something like that. Have you ever seen those infomercials for the, the for the mind science cults, uh, you know, in the middle of the night? For those of you insomniacs know what I'm talking about. Um, it's this is uh, this is ridiculous. You know, that reality is is what you believe it to be and what you speak it to be. And it, this, this sounds like it's really related to Christian science, not to biblical Christianity. By the way. Um, you know, how do you know uh, that, uh, you know, if, if you were to t- tour through hell, how would you be, ident- be able to identify the Christian scientists in hell? I'm not talking about scientists who are Christian, but the Christian science cult followers. If you were to travel through hell, let's say that the angel Gabriel said, come, I'm going to take you on a tour of hell. How would you be able to identify the people that are in hell who are part of the Christian science cult? Answer, they're the ones sitting over in the corner going, I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm I'm not here. I'm not here. Yeah, but they are there. And no matter how many times they say it, it doesn't matter. The reality is what the reality is. Let's continue. Midst of the waters, let it be divided. God said in verse 9, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together. Verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. Verse 20, God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Come on. Verse 24, God said. You know, it's as if the word somehow are the powerful thing, not God. I mean, seriously, just flip it on. Just flip it for a second. If the word is really the thing that has all the power, not God, then what at some point the word has to have said, let there be God. Let every let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image. Verse 29, God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields fruit. God said. And we've had many messages on the power of words, but if we're going to move from naturally supernatural and actually be a channel to release God, it begins with our words. Come on, it begins with what comes out of our mouth. I, I... Oh, my goodness. Come on. Really? This is magic. I remember even as a boy, somebody preaching on the power of words, and I thought I would try it in a bad way. I was a teenager at the time. What do you do as a teenager? You're always looking for some kind of one-upmanship. I was one of eight kids, as you know, three older sisters. and You know what this sounds like? It sounds like that book, The Secret, you know, The Power of Attraction. Three, uh, four, three brothers, so four boys, and then a younger sister, so four boys, four girls. Well, I tried it out on my younger sister. But this is what I said to her one day. I said, hey, Bex. She said, what? I was only a teenager. I said, are you okay? And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean am I okay? I said, are you okay? She said, yeah. I said, you don't look very well. She said, really? How do I look? I said, oh, you look really sick. Over the course of that day, I think about five or six times, you've you got to realize where I've come from to be a pastor. <laughs> I said to her, you look really bad. The next day, no embellishment whatsoever. She woke up really sick. What you see, that proves it. 
You see, he cursed his sister because he said to her, you look sick. There are some people who are susceptible to the power of suggestion. But notice what he's saying here. He created sickness in her life. So who's the one, who, who's God in this, in this scenario? Not, not Paul DeJong, but apparently the words are. The words are God. I understand today is words create. Really, words create. <laughs> the words, they're God. And I just want to encourage you, but challenge you with the fact that even Proverbs 18.20 says, a man's stomach is filled or shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. And- Proverbs 18.20. Let's go look at that in context and see what it says. Proverbs 18. By the way, the Proverbs, one of the things that is really, really, really important is that as you are reading the Proverbs, you understand that this is wisdom about the will of God and you know what it means to do a good work and how, how this is an application passage. It's an application book, if you would. And it's only unlocked, it is only unlocked in the understand, proper understanding of that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear of the Lord is true repentance and faith in Christ faith and trust in God for the forgiveness of sins and for salvation. And so this book remains a locked up book unless you truly are somebody who has faith and you read it understanding that this is showing you how God's will is acted out in different ways and in different scenarios. It truly does give you wisdom, but that wisdom only comes first by saving faith and fear and love and trust in God. Proverbs 18, now he read... um, Verse 20. Let me back up and uh, let's see if we can see if there's a a theme to some of these Proverbs. Um, I'll begin with, um, you know what? Let's let's go ahead and read all of Proverbs 18. I think it's important to do that. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, and the fountains of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked, or to deprive righteousness, the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to a soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his words is a brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a stronger tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise sees knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. The the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. 
For from the fruit of a man's mouth his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of his tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor use uh, the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. A man of many companions may uh, come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer to a brother. Okay, now the verses in question, okay, are twenty and twenty-one. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, the question is, what does this mean? Is this passage saying that words have a special magical power? And you have to recognize they have a special magical power. And that special magical power gives you the ability to create reality or to curse somebody in such a way as to destroy them. Is that what this is saying? That they're magical. Is that what the passage saying says? No, that's not what it says at all. 